Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. years of the 19th century, that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. Broadcasting live from a tiny studio somewhere in North America. This is Dark Matters Radio Live. Live. And now I give you your host, the Silverback of Ufology. Here's Don Ecker. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back again this week to another edition of Dark Matters Radio. And, of course, Dark Matters Radio is brought to you courtesy of KGRA Radio, your contact point to those dark, dusty corners. And joining us once again, because I called him up and I said, Hey, how would you like to come on the show this coming Friday? And accepting because he wasn't busy doing a three-minute clip for George Snorri and Coast to Coast is the same guy that was my very first guest on this show on KGRA Radio, Mr. Kevin Randall. Kevin D. Randall, Lieutenant Colonel, retired. Kevin, how are you? Uh, who is this? I don't Are we know. on the radio now? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. And incidentally, Hi, Don, I, might, I might add that Kevin is fresh out of a natural disaster that happened a few weeks previously. They had a hell of a storm in his section of the country that came in, blew down poles, lines, electrical lines, all kinds of stuff, and he still, to this point, doesn't have his internet connection, his landline. He's joining us through the miracle of modern communications called a cell phone. Well, the one thing you have to understand, Don, is it not only blew down the utility poles and all that stuff, he took out about 75% of the trees in the city. And that created a real mess. Sounds like you're going to be busy on Arbor Day there, bud. (laughs) Yes, I am. 
So other than uh, natural disasters and uh, continuing streets filled with protesters and radio and TV being almost unlistenable and unwatchable, unwatchable, what have you been up to? I have just been sitting at my computer working on a book about the Leveland UFO sightings from November of 1957 because I think they're very important UFO sightings. You had people at 13 separate locations independently calling the sheriff and talking about how a coast approach of this UFO had stalled their car engines and turned out their headlights and filled their radios with static. And I think it's a very important case because it took place over a period of an hour and a half, two hours, and people were independently reporting this interaction with the environment to the local sheriff. And I've been, I've been kind of researching that because, frankly, I have nothing else to do because we have very little in the way of Internet or, uh, or cable TV. Well, with that aside, and, and we'll get back to it in just a moment, When how long do you figure it'll be before you uh, are back up and running 100%? Well, we just actually, we just had our standby generator turned on today, installed, so I will never be without power for days on end again. But um, I think the best case scenario, we're looking at October, or the worst case scenario, we're looking at October 24th for the uh, uh, power, for the cable and the internet to come back, maybe as early as uh, next week, but uh, I fear that's not going to happen given the circumstances. Wow. Wow. That is really something. Um, Now, here in, of course, sunny Southern California, I'm sure prior to you losing all connection practically with the outside world, you heard about California's rolling blackouts, right? Oh, absolutely. And I know the state's on fire. So there you go. And what's not on fire, people are setting on fire just for, I guess, the fun of it. There we go. I forgot to unplug my phone. <laughs> and of course, it would it would uh, do it right now. Why not when I'm on the air? What the hell, right? Oh, yeah. boy. Nobody ever nobody ever calls me on this phone when, except when I'm on the air and then of course it rings. Uh, but I haven't been on the air for a while because I can't make connections with the studio and we have no internet, so there you right. go. Right. Well, what I was going to say before I was so rudely interrupted, uh, we, we've we been suffering with rolling blackouts, and our electrical company is Southern California Edison. And i got to say, we, we've had our ups and downs with them. But I got my – now, this is – uh, this is almost at the beginning of the year uh, of this year, which incidentally, I'm sure I'm not the only guy that uh, is going to be happy when this stinking year is over. But uh, I dug out my generator, took it over to Home Depot, had them reservice it, and I've got it right next to my back door. And uh, we have had two instances where the power went out. And we learned a lesson very early. We got to have something to keep the refrigerator going, if nothing else. So uh, that's been a godsend for that. And, of course, it, it 
pumps out enough juice that I can do other things like plug in lamps and uh, my coffee maker, of course. So, uh, you know, if, if something unforeseen happens, uh, we'll be good until the gasoline runs out anyway. And what we did was buy a standby generator, which is plugged into the natural gas line. So we're not carrying gasoline to the generator or anything. And if the power grid collapses again, we will be without power for all of 10, 15 seconds before the standby generator kicks in automatically. Oh, and that's has enough cool. power And has enough power to, to, to power up the entire house. That probably is cool. Two or, probably two or three other houses as well. But that was the thing that we never expected this kind of a blackout. And so that we ended up losing hundreds of dollars worth of food in the freezers and the refrigerator and things like that. And just something you never consider. And then being without uh, cable TV is, is really a horrible situation to be in. Yeah. And not to mention the, and, and the internet, um, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've been going to look something up on the internet and can't do it because I have no internet. I do some of my work at the local grocery store that has, that offers free Wi-Fi, so I can connect to their free Wi-Fi and answer email periodically and things like that. But it's just really a pain in the butt. Well, this is a uh, prime example where I hope you had a DVD player on hand. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, um, this past week, Kevin... I managed to uh, watch James Fox's new documentary, The Phenomenon. And incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Randall has an acknowledgement and a thanks at the end of this uh, documentary. And I, I'll be honest, I, I was not quite sure what my reaction to this would be. Now, you know, I've been doing this. UFO thing for decades now, and I could not begin to name all the documentaries and other things that over those years I've watched, I've seen, I've owned, and some were very good over the years, and some were so-so, and then there were others that were complete crap. And I'll give you a very quick example. This week, I watched something else called, I believe it was Mysteries from Space or Beyond or something. Excuse me. Something like that. And I began watching it. They were talking about Mars mysteries and some other odds and ends. Then the narrator brought on Photographs of John Lear talking about his research, including discovering there were 600 million human beings living on the moon and some other batshit crazy things. And then he started talking about Richard Hoagland and called Hoagland a physicist. And that's when I knew it was time to turn this thing off. Now, with that being said, I popped the uh, the movie in my TV, the documentary, and I watched it. And I got to tell you, I was totally impressed with this film. It was, in my humble opinion, excellent. Uh, 
not only did they <clears throat> talk about, and I'm going to, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing a, a review on this. I want to rewatch it again before I do a review. But Fox had tracked and located a number of people, important people, I might ask, down that I, in all those years and years, have never seen interviewed before, which included the wife of the late Lonnie Zamora, the Socorro case, uh, the wife of the McMinnville photos, uh, UFO photos back in the 50s. Uh, she's very elderly now, but I had never seen her interviewed and the daughter of Kenneth Arnold. And I just thought that Fox did a stellar job. Now, they went into the Zimbabwe UFO sighting with all those kids. Uh, a number of other cases, they had one of my personal favorites on there. Now, of course, he's been deceased for a number of years. But they pulled down some very appropriate uh uh, interviews with Colonel Gordon Cooper. And uh, I just thought it was all around fantastic. Uh, Kevin, now, how were you involved with this? And what did you provide uh, Fox? Well, the one thing that I know he uh, called and asked for information about various cases and things like that. And when Don Schmidt and I were doing the investigation of the Roswell case, we made videotapes of an awful lot of the witnesses who are no longer with us, given Roswell was 1947. And so I supplied him with some of that material. I think I supplied him with the, uh, a tape of, of uh, uh, Bill Brazel talking about what, it, what he had seen and how and he'd been General involved DeBose, in the Roswell right? case. General DeBose, General DeBose also. General DeBose. At the time, 1947, he was the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force. He worked for Roger Ramey, who was the commander of the 8th Air Force at, at Fort Worth, uh, Carswell Air Force, later Carswell Air Force Base, and uh, talked about his involvement with transferring some of the materials picked up in Roswell to uh, Washington, D.C. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. See, and what he had observed in General Ramey's office and that sort of thing. So I, I supplied information like that and suggested places that they might look for additional information or gave them some I don't want to really say guidance, but some some help on some of the cases they were looking at, at and, and where they might look for additional information. So I just supplied that sort of thing. At one point, 
Um, I was going to go out to be interviewed on camera. They were going to come here to interview me on camera, but other things got in the way of all of that. So that never came to pass, but we did, I did an awful lot of work with them in that, that respect. And I know there was an awful lot of other people involved as well, doing the same things I was doing, supplying them with information and suggesting directions to go with cases or cases that may not have been as uh, important in today's environment as they, as we thought they were years and years ago. I, I think as an example is the Charles Witted case. These were the two airline pilots that supposedly saw cigar-shaped craft with windows back in uh, 1948, I think it was. And we've, we've since learned that what they probably saw was a bolide. So given the um, the perception problems with seeing a streak of light combined, if you watch, I've seen videos on, on YouTube of meteors breaking up and, and you look at those things and we know what they are and we can see them, but you get the impression of a row of windows in a lighted cockpit as the, as the meteor breaks up. And if you just caught a glimpse of it, you may get the impression of a cigar shaped craft and that sort of thing. So I provided that kind of assistance and uh, sent them, sent them videotapes and audio tapes for them to use in their, uh, their documentary, and I, I, I'm sure I know Don Schmidt did the same thing. I, I think Tom Carey was probably involved in some fashion, and I know that um, I know that James Fox spent a lot of time in Scorro, New Mexico, with Lonnie Zamora's widow, and talking to her and gaining her confidence in what, uh, so that he had an opportunity to see all the materials that Lonnie Zamora had collected after the 1964 landing, including letters from all over the world and that sort of thing, people writing to him to tell him what he'd seen because, of course, if you if you weren't there and you have no idea what's going on, you are an expert and can write to somebody and tell them, this is really what you saw. I think it's important to note for the Zamora case that Lonnie Zamora never really wavered from what he'd seen, suggesting some kind of a um, uh, alien presence there in Socorro, New Mexico. One of the things, that I, and I don't remember if they got this in the... Um, documentary i had on my radio program a different perspective i had interviewed uh, ben moss and tony angiola and they had been investigating the socorro case and during the program they said to me that that three people had called the police station in socorro before lonnie zamora called in with what he had seen talking about this thing in the sky and i said did you check out the police records and i never got a good answer from them on that I don't know why we never got that answer, but so I started doing some research into it. And what I discovered was, no, there was no police log, but Captain Richard Holder, who was the um, one of the officers that was involved, army officers who was involved uh, within 90 minutes of, of the sighting and interviewing Zamora in a report he had written that very night. And I think he sent it to the Pentagon. He said that talking to the police officers, there had been three reports of people in Socorro seeing this thing in the sky. And uh, that kind of confirmed what Ben Moss and Tony Angiola had told me. It wasn't, it wasn't in the police records, but we do have a contemporary document that verifies that. So we, we moved the Zamora case from a single witness, a single police officer seeing this thing on the ground to a number of people who would talk to the police about about it. Not as good as being able to find those people and getting exactly what they said, but at least we have some documentation of people seeing something strange that day within literally minutes of Lonnie Zamora reporting what he'd seen. So, you know, those sorts of things become important uh, as, as you do that kind of research. And I know that Fox spent a great deal of time and a great deal of effort 
in attempting to track down the witnesses and track down the sources of information so he could provide the best case possible. Well, I'll never forget in uh, 1964, it was in the spring. It had to be on a Friday evening because uh, my my parents and and my little sister and I, we had just had dinner, and we were going to go to the drive-in movie theater that night to see something. And, do we, do uh, we have to explain to do we have to explain to the younger people what a drive-in theater is? Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> Once upon a time, there used to be great big public lots with a huge. I mean, it would it would make the biggest HD TV a 74, 80, 84 inch TV look tiny by comparison. You would drive into this lot. They had all these little stands with speakers on them. You would take a speaker off the stand, put it in your window, wind your window up, and then wait for the movie. And uh, in the meantime, you could go into the uh, concession stand and buy your popcorn and your corn dogs or whatever else they were selling and then watch the movie into the wee hours of the uh, of the night. Now, if you were a teenager... Can I, can I, can I- well, I was going to say, can I can I suggest that or make a prediction that drive-in theaters are going to come back given the circumstances in the world today? It very well could. You could be onto something there. Yeah. Now, teenagers. So you were going to talk about teenagers. These. Teenagers. Yeah, yes. they they love these things because uh, guys would take their girlfriends there, and then instead of watching the movie, they'd spend the whole evening making out on the front or the back seat. So, uh, yeah, they were quite popular back in the day. But at any rate, with that being said, we were waiting for it to get dark. And uh, my dad was in the living room and he was reading the newspaper. And suddenly he yelled at me, come here, I want you to see something. So I went into the living room and he had the paper spread out in front of him. And there was the story about the Socorro landing, Kevin. And that stuck with me all these years. I'll never forget that. Of course, I was just a kid then. I wasn't, uh, other than reading the occasional Frank Edwards book or uh, some other odds and ends, I really didn't uh, know much about the UFO topic, but that blew my mind. Now, with that being said, over the years, I've heard skeptics far and wide try to explain that away. As a matter of fact, one possible explanation I heard, and I had to belly laugh when I heard it, was somebody tried to say, well, I think it was probably a a model of the NASA moon lander they were testing out there in the desert. Did you ever hear that one? Oh, absolutely. I've heard them all. I I ended up doing a book called Encounter in the Desert about about the case that came out a couple of years ago. And I looked at a lot of those sorts of explanations. There really, there really is only two answers. Either Lonnie Zamora saw an alien spacecraft landing in New Mexico, or it's a hoax. There really is no middle ground. There is no terrestrial explanation that fits the facts as described by Zamora, or the physical evidence left on the scene by the craft. And when you plug in additional witnesses having heard the thing fly over Socorro and that sort of thing, and you look at some of the nonsense the skeptics have put out. Philip Klass said that um, there was a guy who lived uh, 
not that far away from the landing site. He didn't hear anything, and he'd gone up there that very night and looked around, and he didn't see any of the landing traces. But if you if you read the documentation, you find out from the point that Zamora saw the craft and it takes off, there were people on that scene. There were first uh, additional um, police officers and law enforcement officers, later the military people, and I think around 9 o'clock that night, the um, they got MPs up there to uh, cordon off the area, uh, put rocks around the landing traces and that sort of thing. So this guy couldn't have walked up there and said, well, nothing was going on because from the point that Zamora saw the thing until the next morning, there were, there were people on that site. So yeah, I've, I've heard that, that explanation. I think what they've done is um, they looked at the records and there was the, the um, testing of the, the lunar lander was going on in California, the power test. They were trying some tests in New Mexico at the White Sands Missile Range, but those were all carried by helicopters. So even even if it had gotten that far off the range into Socorro and uh, that sort of thing, Zamora would have seen the helicopter, you know, it did, because well, it was there, yeah, it landed, and, and, and it took off. The lunar lander that we ended up using, it could have never flown in uh, the Earth's atmosphere with uh, our... 1g gravity and 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 remain i think in one piece i mean that was that was a flimsy damn thing wasn't it yes and the 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 documentation takes it out of the running and and that's the thing that's always bothered me about the skeptical community they will they will attack a, a, a sighting from a skeptical point of view and i have no problems with that but if somebody offers or offers an explanation they say, yeah, that's great, wonderful, let's go. They do not apply the same skeptical standards to an explanation because any explanation for a UFO sighting or landing is better than no explanation at all. A lot of them just can't say, well, we just don't know. We're, okay, we're now, we, there, we have no explanation. One, there's one thing that we have not addressed. We have not mentioned it. And as a matter of fact, before the question I'm about to read to you came in, I happened to think about that. And I wanted to ask you your take on it. But one of our chat lounge users, Libertas, has an excellent question. And that question is, is there a definitive answer, Kevin, on the design that Zamora said he saw on the side of this craft, that glyph? I, I say yes. I disagree with uh, Ben Moss and Tony Angiola what it is. But I base what I say on the Air Force file. Zamora, um, after the thing took off, I mean, within seconds of the thing disappearing in the, in the sky, Zamora wrote a symbol down on a scrap of paper. Later on, when he's being interviewed by Richard Holder and an FBI guy, I think uh, Arthur Burns, uh, he drew what the object looked like, and on a couple of them, he drew a, the symbol. Later on, a fellow named Rick Baca, under Zamora's direction, drew what the craft looked like, and then Zamora appended the symbol to it um, later. The, the picture originally appeared in the newspaper, the uh, Defensor Chieftain, which is the newspaper there in Socorro, without any symbol on it, and then Zamora had it put on later on. So, yeah, there's a definitive answer. The Air Force file on it suggests it's sort of a uh, arrow with a an arc over it and a line across the bottom. Tony... Uh, Angelo and Ben Moss insist it's an inverted V with three lines on it. 
But you go back through the files and you go back through the documentation, what you find out is that was an invented symbol that um, they put out trying to keep people from copycatting the sighting, meaning simply, well, I saw the same thing and this is the symbol I saw it. And if they drew the inverted V with the three lines on it, they knew that, that they weren't telling the truth. Uh, I think because the Project Blue Book files, where some of this documentation exists today, and you can you can find that online, you'll see that the Air Force officers involved in the investigation, uh, Holder was a was an Army officer, by by the way. When they wrote their reports, they included the symbol with the arc over it. I call it the umbrella symbol for for the ease of discussion. And I now, can see absolutely. If, if I'm not I was mistaken. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't there another case where a very similar symbol was on an alleged craft and it was called the UMO case or the UMO symbol? No, it, it didn't it didn't match the um Socorro that closely. But there there was a symbol on the UMMO, the UMO case, whatever. I think it's a Spanish case, if I remember correctly. It, it, I think that's actually been proven to be a hoax. But it, um, what I was going to say is I, I could think of no reason why the officers involved in investigating the case the very night it happened and preparing reports the very night it happened would have put on that documentation a symbol they made up as a disguise because they had no expectation. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That anybody would ever see those documents. Uh, project Blue Book was uh, a priority project with a classification. You couldn't just go walk into the door and, and ask to see the stuff. You had to kind of work work for that. So they had no expectation that anybody was going to see that. So there, re- there would be no reason for them to fudge the symbol. Okay, hold, the, um, hold, hold the rest of your thought. I just looked at the clock. I am right now a minute past due our break time. Uh, my producer will probably slap me around, Kevin. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Kevin D. Randall, retired, is joining us once again with his oh, extensive knowledge of the topic. Uh, we got a heck of a lot more coming up. Stick around because we're going to be back. Hi folks, it's trembling times and fear is pushing emotions, which in turn pushes health 
the wrong direction. Do you ever get an ache because life is uneasy? Try Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. Life Change Tea works on your digestive tract, helping to move food through quicker and comfortably so your health is spot on. Life Change Tea may not help with world issues, but it will help with your digestive issues. A glass a day helps keep the intruders away. So, change your life today. Log on to GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. If your health game is off, get on by ordering Life Change Tea. GetTheTea.com. And while you're on our site, look around at the great non-GMO organic supplements. And if you're a sales shopper, go to our specials page and see what's for you. I've been drinking the tea for 12 years and I'm sure glad for its health benefits. Again, that's GetTheTea.com. GetTheTea.com. The tea that makes you go. When you're in the house for longer periods of time, you can see them flying or running across the floor. Ooh, yuck. They're unhealthy, gross, and disgusting. Bugs. I loathe bugs. We keep a clean home, but occasionally bugs show up. Well, I found something that is tougher than bugs. Orange Guard. On contact, it kills hidden bugs, including ants, roaches, and fleas. Plus, Orange Guard is a residual repellent. All of the ingredients of Orange Guard are on the FDA generally recognized as safe list. Orange Guard may be used around food, humans, and pets. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Orange Guard. Available at OrangeGuard.com, Whole Foods, and Ace Hardware. The Liberator Rocket Heater will heat your home for free. The highly efficient Liberator Rocket Heater has no moving parts. It's safe and strong, constructed of quarter-inch steel. So like all things made in the USA, it's built to last. Uses any kind of wood, sticks, even scrap in its gravity-fed firebox. And it heats workshops, homes, garages, outbuildings, industrial areas, and barns. Watch the video of this blast furnace stove in action. Visit rocketheater.com. That's rocketheater.com. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. You listen to us, and we listen to you. And so does the CIA. <laughs> KGRARadio.com. And back again with Mr. Randall. Kevin, hey, you know, this is a... Uh, a path that, well, you've been on it longer than I have, but I've been on it a really long time. So I'm going to do something that I don't normally do with my guests. And I'm going to uh, also chime in on whatever your response to this is going to be bit of curiosity here when I ask you the question, in your humble opinion, Kevin, do you speculate they are here? And uh, just as you started to answer, uh, you were gone. 
So uh, let's try it again. Kevin, in your opinion, what do you think? Are they here? I believe I lean toward they are here. And I do this because looking at some of the documentation, looking at the investigation that's been conducted over the years by official sources, I, I go back to the Leveland case. And here, the sheriff of Hockley County, that Leveland is in Hockley County, Texas, went out to look for the object after he'd received a number of phone calls. And it was reported he just saw a red streak in the sky. Don Burlinson talked to the wife of the sheriff and his daughter 20 years ago, and they said the sheriff had seen something more than just the streak of red. And I'm thinking, you know, that isn't very helpful. But as I was doing research for Encounter in the Desert, I discovered that the sheriff, I'm sorry, not Encounter in the Desert, but for the Level Land book, the sheriff actually reported that he had seen an oval-shaped craft. And there is contemporary documentation to prove it. But when you get to the Air Force file on it, and his statement to the Air Force, it mentions nothing about that. And I find that extremely interesting, that he was coached into what he was going to say. There's something else that came out about it, and Burlington found this as well, that the mechanic for the police department had examined the sheriff's car the next day to see if there was anything wrong with it. The implication being that the car had been stalled by this, the close approach of the object, that the sheriff got much closer than that, and his car had been stalled as well. That never shows up anywhere. But more importantly, when the sheriff went out, he went out with other law enforcement uh, personnel, including members of the Texas Department of Public Safety. But he also went out with Air Force officers. In other words, there were Air Force officers involved in the sighting with the sheriff, and you've never seen those reports anywhere, and I can't find them. So we have some very good documentation. And what that tells me, there's something else going on there that leads us to that direction. Leveland is one of those cases. There is no terrestrial explanation for it. Um, and you have sightings of a craft interacting with the environment. You have multiple witnesses at at least 13 separate locations reporting independently what happened to them, and their stories match about their cars being stolen, that sort of thing. That leads us toward the extraterrestrial. It would be nice if we had a craft, if we had bodies, if we had uh, photographs taken from multiple locations by independent witnesses of the same object at the same time. That would be great. We have something like that with Leveland, but we just don't have the photographs. We have all the other components, but this was 1957. So unlike today where everybody has a camera on them at all times, uh, most people did travel with cameras, so you didn't have a, much of an opportunity for that. So the, 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 that's a long-winded way to say, yeah, I lean toward the extraterrestrial. I would, I would like to leap over that fence with some absolute smoking gun evidence, uh, but it's just not in our hands at this time. Well, okay, that... That incidentally leads me to a couple of things <clears throat> that I want to I want to mention to you to get your feedback on it. Uh, first off, let me make this announcement because of the problem, the technical problem that we experienced a very short time ago when we lost my guest. Uh, we had an unscheduled break, so we are going to continue broadcasting through what would typically be our top-of-the-hour 
break. We're just going to skip that and continue on. Now, Kevin, back in the mid to latter 1980s, when I was making a decision on whether I wanted to jump into this fish pond with both feet or just stick my toes in there a little bit. And I know over the years I've had to have, I had to have mentioned this to you. You may or may not recall. But I told you that before I made my decision, I did a, a, a very intensive, approximately six-month research into this topic. And I picked up and, and ordered and, oh, my God, the material that I collected. And a number of those books that I ended up with were books written by Donald Kehoe in the 19, the early 1950s. And in either his second or third book, it might have been in the book, I think it was uh, titled UFOs from Space, if I'm not completely losing it. Uh, he recited a case that took place about 1953. Now, by 1953, the Army Air Corps was no more. The United States Air Force was the new service, okay? They had uh, made their bones about 19, roughly 1947, I believe. Is that correct, Kevin, 1947? Yes, they and, became a separate uh, service. Right. They were testing what we would call today an AWACS aircraft. And it was on a converted B-29 Super Fortress bomber. They had it jammed the gills with all kinds of electronic equipment, uh, radar, etc., and they were flying down in the Gulf of Mexico when they encountered, according to the report that Kehoe got his hands on, an object that was closing in on, the estimation was, 2,000 feet in length. This object was streaking up into the sky. The Air Force radar operators painted the the thing, whatever it was, and the speed was going from seven upwards to 9,000 miles an hour as this thing was catching in the rear a number of, compared to the the ship, tiny disc-shaped objects. In other words, it was like a mothership that was lifting off into the atmosphere, and it was retrieving a number of UFOs, uh, the saucers or disks, that it apparently at some point or another had deployed. Are you familiar with that case, Kevin? Vaguely. I remember reading it a long, long time ago in one of Kehoe's books, and that's about all I can tell you about it. 
I just do not remember the details of it at all. Uh, I just remember reading about that. And my thought at the time was it was more like an aircraft carrier retrieving its aircraft as it motored across the Pacific Ocean or whatever. So right. I, I, I thought of it that way, but I just don't remember the specifics at all. Well, you know, other than that, I mean, there's not really not a heck of a lot more without any technical reports or anything by the by the operators on board that B-29. But uh, this was long before, long before, you know, uh, hell, we could go much faster than the speed of sound. Uh Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here was something they computed traveling from 7 to 9,000 miles an hour as it was heading up into the atmosphere, into the outer atmosphere. So just cases like that... You know, uh, for anybody that's serious about this subject, should give you a pause to think. Now, he also reported on one other thing that has never left my mind, and this was along about 1954 or 1955, where military radar operators detected. Now, remember. I guess I should I should give you a little uh, prelude to this. No human nation on planet Earth had achieved anything in orbit prior to 1957 when the Soviet Union launched its first Sputnik satellite into orbit. So, 3 or Four years prior to 57, military radar operators here in the United States detected two objects that somehow apparently had taken up orbit around planet Earth. One was out about 400 miles. The other was out estimated at about 600 miles. Now, when that hit the newspapers, and back in those days, they they would report things like this. When that hit the newspapers, astronomers were brought in to uh, basically calm the public and suggested that these were asteroids that just somehow Earth 
managed to capture. And there were there was even talk about when we finally went into space, we might be able to use those as a landing base outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, of course, that pure poppycock. Later, those two things disappeared. Now, that would suggest to me, Kevin, that somebody has been keeping an eye on us for a long time. Well, I do remember reading that stuff, those those, those cases uh, in Kehoe's books. But just uh, a week or two ago, I read about an asteroid that's supposed to make a close approach to the Earth and a suggestion that it's going to be captured by the Earth's gravitational pull and orbit the Earth as a tiny, tiny moonlet for a number of years before it slung back into space. And what, I mean, we can look at it two ways. One is this is a natural phenomenon and it happens periodically, or there's something else going on here and uh, somebody is putting something into orbit that isn't, and that somebody is not based on Earth, but they're doing it as some kind of a platform from which they can launch their uh, explorations of the planet Earth. I was, I, you know, I always thought that the sightings from um, October of 1973, we had a period of about six weeks from late September 73 to the beginning of November of 1973, there was awful lot of UFO sightings, awful lot of the objects on the ground, an awful lot of reports of occupants. And my thought process of that was simply that if we looked at it from an Earth point of view, what we had is some kind of a college professor leading his graduate students on an expedition to Earth, gathering as much data as they could, as quickly as they could, based on the descriptions of the sightings that, that we were getting, uh, gathering all that information so they could go back to their home university, wherever it might have been, and study that material over the years before they make the next assault on, on studying the Earth. This is exactly what we would do, uh, or what we have done in the past, studying primitive cultures and, and uh, things things of that nature. So yeah, there are those kinds of things going on that are that are very, very interesting. But but the, the kind of the point I was making with the Leveland sightings was um, the data that we have been getting through the government by reading the Project Blue Book files, for example, has been managed. So it takes out the stuff that they don't want to have to address. And, and what you were talking about with the, I'll call them moonlets because I don't have a better word for it, with, that Kehoe was talking about, could, could well have been some kind of an alien craft that was put into orbit around the Earth for them to uh, launch their expeditions to the planet. And once they were done with their uh, gathering of information, they went home. So we, we can look at it from both points of view. And I, I think we need to take a somewhat skeptical standpoint and say, okay, Interstellar flight is really impossible for us, which is not to say somebody at some point is not going to figure out how to do it. But it is impossible for us at this time, and we don't know what the expenditures of energy are going to be to get that sort of thing. All we know is that um, it would take us literally thousands of years to get even to the nearest star system under our current technology. But our, but our technology today is so much different than it was 50 years ago. And you and I both know that because we've lived through that time period. I mean, when, when I was growing up, we had three TV stations and they broadcast in black and white, basically. And today, um, if you don't, even if you don't have cable over di digital television, which we're having to use now because my cable is out, 
Uh, I counted them today. I've got 21 channels that I can pick up over the air, and they, the, the color is incredible. Um, you know, what we've done today, what we can do today, would have been inexplicable 50 years ago, and yet we do that routinely. Uh, cell phones. I, I often marveled at the Star Trek communicators, and they say, well, you know, you can get all this information on the Star Trek communicator. I'm thinking, my cell phone's more powerful than the Star Trek communicator because I have the entire knowledge of the human race at my fingertips through my cell phone. You know, I can gather any information I want through my cell phone. I just have to be careful it's not garbage that I'm gathering, but but I can do that. And so, um, you know, we have to be careful on how we look at these things, but there are cases that are extremely inexplicable. And at the moment, the only thing you can say is there's two explanations. It's either alien visitation or it's a complete and utter hoax. You know, there is no there is no middle ground on some of these cases. It's the, Z- the Zamora case from, from Socorro. That's one of those cases. It's either alien visitation or it's a hoax. There is no middle ground in there. And I, I remember Hector Quintanella, who was the chief of Project Blue Book in 1964. Right. And he, wrote, he, he, he wrote in his memoirs that he had no explanation for it. He thought that there was, the explanation was locked in Lonnie Zamora's brain, that he'd seen something that would unlock the clue of what they had seen, but he didn't know what it was. He had to mark it as unidentified. And here's a craft landing with a being seen outside it, and the Air Force investigator says, I don't know what he saw. Well, you know, about a week ago uh, on this show, I had mentioned <clears throat> a uh, audio clip that I have in my files where former senior Senator Barry Goldwater, who in 1964 ran for president of the United States for the Republican Party, and uh, what a lot of people may or may not be aware of is that uh, Goldwater was, I believe he was a major general in the Air Force Reserves. Uh, The man was one of the leading and senior members of the Senate. I mean, this guy was somebody with a hell of a lot of juice. And he had been personal friends with General Curtis LeMay. Now, I'm going to, and I, I said last week I was going to dig that out, and I was going to send it to uh, New York, back uh, at our studios in New York. And uh, one of these nights, I was going to play that, uh, where Goldwater was asked about UFOs. Now, as it turns out, Barry Goldwater, senior U.S. senator, Republican, from the state of Arizona, a flag officer-ranked military officer in the reserves, former presidential contender of the United States of America, had an interest in UFOs. And as a matter of fact, it was a, apparently quite, uh, for a while there at any rate, quite an obsession. So who was he buddies with but Curtis LeMay? A four-star general. Bomb him back to the Stone Age, Kurt LeMay. Okay. The guy that led the air campaign against Imperial Japan in World War II. 
And Goldwater approached him and said words to the effect of, hey, Kurt, from what I understand, Wright-Patterson has some place somewhere in it that's called the Blue Room or something. And I understand that that's where the Air Force has been, has been uh, uh, shipping material from UFO cases. What's the chance that I could go down there and take a look around? Now, remember, these guys were buddies. And he said LeMay turned purple. The veins in his neck popped out. And he began screaming and cursing at, well, <laughs> this senior U.S. senator. And he said, no, you can't go down there. I can't even go down there. So if that is not simply apocryphal, and I don't believe for a second that it is, I think Goldwater was telling it just like it happened, because when he was being interviewed, LeMay was already dead, that uh, apparently that would seem to me, Kevin, that there is a place at Wright-Patterson where they may have a lot of skeletons buried. What do you say? Well, I think I have to begin by pointing out that when Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, my mother was told that if she voted for Goldwater, we'd end up in a land war in Asia. And she voted for Goldwater, and we ended up in a land war for Asia. Of course, it was Lyndon Johnson who started it, but that's a whole other <laughs> argument. But I, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of I remember that. I, I think I might have been there. So, yeah, me too. Anyway, um, I have a letter in my files. It was sent to Kent Jeffrey, where he asked Goldwater the same thing about that. And Goldwater said essentially the same thing, but he was not allowed to say it. I think the words were not only hell, but hell, not only no, but hell no. And if you ever ask me again, I'll have you court-martialed. So there was something going on at Wright-Patterson that was protected by the highest level of security. And that suggests something more. And, 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 and that was kind of my point with um, looking at the Leveland case and finding these little bits and pieces of information that don't appear in the Project Blue Book file, but we can confirm through other documentation available from that time frame that there was a manipulation of the data of, of, to suggest there's nothing to it, and yet it, there is something going on that does, in, in fact, affect national security in the relation to the UFO sightings. And I don't think the Air Force or the government or the Navy wants anybody to ask specific questions about that. And they, they always, they always word their answers to FOIA. They always word, word things very carefully where they're telling the truth, but it's not really the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's, it's, it's like, um, Oh, the, um, sightings, sightings in Utah in 1962. And there were stories of aircraft being scrambled to intercept the UFO. And an Air Force officer wrote back and said uh, there were no scrambles. That didn't happen. And yet you go through the files and you find out, yeah, aircraft were scrambled. I think the, the major who wrote the letter saying it, there were no With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Aircraft scrambled. Believe that was the truth when he wrote it. He did not have access to the whole file, and that's that's the key. You know, you don't have access to everything, and you're telling the truth as best you know it. But what you're saying doesn't reflect reality. Okay, I got another uh, question that that came in from the chat lounge, and. Uh, the questioner said, in your opinion, Kevin, do you believe there's an aspect to the UFO phenomena that is, quote, unquote, self-concealing? As mentioned before, everybody has a camera in their pocket these days, but there are very few compelling photographs, at least the kind of photographs that would substantiate something like a ship the size of a football field hovering over a city or a craft so big that it blotted out the sky or even a saucer-shaped disk hovering over an airport in Chicago. If UFOs are alien tech, then the lack of good evidence has to be built in, defense, in a defense mechanism of the phenomena. What are your thoughts? I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting point of view, but I think the problem isn't necessarily that the the UFOs are kind of concealing themselves, but it's an effort by our government to conceal the information, so that if there's a good photograph taken, the public relations machinery goes into effect to smear the photographer. Um, the, the, the fellow uh, who took the Montana movie, Nick Mariana, back in 1950, he had two objects flying over Great Falls, Montana, um, in the daylight, two bright lights. And the Air Force has said, well, it was two jet fighters. Well, no, it wasn't two jet fighters. But they went out, uh, out of their way to smear this guy. Um, he had been a um, sports commentator, had a little syndicate of radio stations that he was on. I think it was 13 radio stations. And he lost his sponsorship on nine of them because of, what was said about him and his integrity. And I, I, that goes on and on and on. I mean, how many times do you, you hear, well, the people who see UFOs are bib wearing hicks with three teeth and a bottle of gin in their hip pockets. And when you look at the statistical evidence, what you find out is the best UFO cases come from highly educated people who get a very good look at what they're, what they're observing. So it do, the, the statistics don't bear out the things that we've been told. And I think the news media was of the attitude for a long time, and, and we can see the news media interjecting their own opinions into the news today much more forcefully than they used to. But I, I think there was a bias against UFO reporting, and the attitude was, I'm too sophisticated to believe in little green men, so I'll report this story, but I'll report it with my tongue in cheek, and everybody will know I don't really report it. They don't follow up on the facts. They don't clearly understand what's going on. They don't interview all the witnesses that they should be doing. And I get it if you're working on a daily newspaper or a 
a television news program, you don't have the time you need to do the in-depth research on a lot of this stuff. But the attitude seems to be, but there are no such things, and therefore I'm not going to waste my time. Don Schmidt and I were going to be interviewed by the Chicago Tribune about the Roswell case. We went down to the Tribune building. The interview took place in a hallway. It was conducted by an intern. That's the kind of, of, of belief that the news people had, it, the kind of respect they had for the information. Now, these two clowns believe in UFOs. We'll send an intern out and talk to, her, talk to him in the hall. And she told us flat out the editors didn't believe the story. Didn't matter what we had in the way of evidence. They didn't believe it. Therefore, it was a nonsense story. So I think more than it being a, 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 a UFO kind of concealing its, uh, itself, and, and there may be something to that that from certain angles you can't see them based on the way uh, they're constructed. I mean, we have, I think we're developing a technology where we can kind of bend the light rays around an object so you don't really see it. Uh, I think you, uh, Stanford... I think was working on something like that, sort of an invisibility. Yeah, clock. yeah, yeah. But that's, but, that's correct. But we also look at stealth, stealth technology because it used to be, well, they're never seen on radar. And my answer today is, yeah, doesn't our stealth technology kind of render that argument useless? Because we've learned how to defeat the radar. And what makes you think that the UFOs didn't know how to do that long before they got here? Well, but we have that, good radar cases. There's, undoubtedly, you are... 1,000% correct in how the topic has been treated for decades. But suddenly there's been a change, and I'm not sure yet how big that change will end up being, but there is a change. Now, the United States Air Force has always been the skunk in the garden party when it came to you, the topic of UFOs. They never met a UFO case that they would officially validate going all the way back to 1947. There's always been a huge, huge bias against this topic. But something I have noticed in the last three to five years, they have been definitely silent about what has been happening. Suddenly, the United States Navy has taken the lead, at least in a public forum, on the topic of UFOs. And, of course, I'm talking about the so-called Tic Tacs, the three Department of Defense films that were released and validated, the fact that former senior Senator Harry Reid from the state of Nevada came forward and admit, admitted at a presser that he, along with a couple of other senators, secured over $20 million for the Pentagon to conduct some classified research on advanced aerial threats which the UFO or UAP would fit neatly in there. And suddenly, they are talking, the Navy has been talking somewhat publicly about this. Now, I checked everywhere to see if there was an Air Force response to this. Not a mucho. 
The Air Force is keeping quiet. Now, in a lot of ways, I find that very curious. In other ways, I don't. But I suspect, at least as far as the Navy is concerned, there's been a softening attitude on this. What do you say? When the information first uh, came out, I did a couple of blogs about this that suggested we were moving closer to um, disclosure. And it looked like the Navy was kind of endorsing uh, the the films as being anomalous. Not necessarily saying they're alien spacecraft, but it's certainly anomalous. We're not really sure what's going on here, that sort of thing. I thought, well, maybe we're moving toward disclosure. Maybe something's going on. But it also seems to have stagnated somewhat in the last uh, year or so, and other things have taken priority. But that was kind of my impression that we're, we've, we've kind of stagnated on that. So I, I worry about that. But I've also heard from, from some people, and I mentioned this on my little segment on Coast to Coast uh, a week or so ago, about disclosure and that the Navy seems to have taken over lead in the investigations. And we go back and look at the history of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, there's a number of cases in which the Navy were heavily involved. There was a um, report done, I think, uh, I think it was released in 1949. It was written in 1949, top secret assessment of the phenomenon conducted by two Naval officers. And their conclusion was that that they couldn't find any evidence that UFOs were alien spacecraft, but they also said, but we didn't have access to everything. So there could be something hidden out there that we did not have access to. And of course, uh, if you don't know where to look, you don't know what questions to ask, you're not going to find it. But it suggests a history of naval interest in the phenomenon. And it seems now that we've moved to the point where the Navy may be the lead organization in the investigations of it everybody's looking at the air force maybe we should have been looking at the navy some some time ago as well um, the air force had the official investigation and i saw a bumper sticker the other say it says don't believe anything until it's been officially denied <laughs> and that and that's where we are in, in in ufo phenomena it's been officially denied for years and years and years the content committee the air force spent five hundred and fifty thousand dollars which even in today's world is a lot of money investigating UFOs. And the answers were written before the investigation began, which is you've got to say something nice about the uh, air force. You've got to say, we did a good job investigating and you've got to suggest that it was, uh, there's no threat of, of uh, national security. And there's no evidence that uh, anything of further investigation would yield anything of scientific value. And that's exactly what they found. And everybody said, well, that's the end of that. So well, we can you know, see we got history. We we got to say that the Navy has always had a five-star intelligence service aspect to it. I mean, after all, they were the guys that uh, were able to break the Japanese code. Okay, during the Second World War. And, I was about uh, to argue that point. I was about to argue that point, but you're absolutely right. The Navy was the ins- instrumental in breaking the Japanese some of the Japanese codes. Right. Well, the naval codes. And yeah. I, I once again, I'm going to refer to Donald Kehoe because Kehoe had a, in many ways, I found it a very amusing antidote. Uh, 
in the early 1950s, and I, I have always referred to that time frame, Kevin, as the golden age of UFO research because the guys at the Pentagon didn't have it all locked down quite as tight as it later would become. But the Secretary of the Navy was on some kind of fact-finding mission. He flew out to Pearl Harbor. Now, World War II is over, okay? This is, I don't know, 51, maybe 52. And uh, he's flying back to Washington, D.C. They're over CONUS. They're over the continental United States. When his aircraft was buzzed by a disc. And that just absolutely freaked everybody on that aircraft out. Okay, my God, this must be real. UFOs, look at that, a flying saucer. So they get back to D.C. And he gets to his office. He calls the Secretary of the Air Force. Okay, now remember, this guy's the Secretary of the damn Navy. And he said, this is what happened. I, I, I want to know, what do you guys have on all this? And you know what the Air Force Secretary told him? You don't to have it. a need to know. Well, <laughs> that undoubtedly, and I'm sure it did, piss this guy off to the maximum. So they began their own investigation now i'm i'm convinced kevin that they've been on this thing ever since and they've well, been keeping all their cards close to their chest i i think you go back to the um the the trimington photos from 1952 taken by taken by newhouse uh naval naval officer newhouse and the air force investigated that and said well it's birds but the navy spent literally thousands of man hours investigating it, making a frame by frame analysis of this film. And their conclusion was it was an internally lighted object, not a, not a bird. And I think you, you look at that, that's 1952 and they're deeply involved in this investigation. Granted it involved a Naval officer, but the, but the point is they're deeply involved in the investigation. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if they had been doing something since then. And as I mentioned, we had that investigation in the late 1940s by two naval officers into what was going on. And they were looking around for what was happening with the UFOs. So uh, clearly the Navy's been involved in some fashion from the very beginning. And if I was the chief of naval operations and I looked at all the crap the Air Force was taking or the, the time the Army Air Forces was taking in their investigations of UFOs, and I had an opportunity to avoid that nonsense, I'm going to take it and let the Air Force have all that fun by themselves, and I'll be off here doing my investigation on the QT. Absolutely. Well, you know, even during the Second World War, there are many documented reports that naval vessels at sea encountered the phenomenon, not only in the air, but also in the water, unidentified submersible objects. Uh, apparently, that's been going on as long as the more familiar UFOs in the sky. There's a great deal of information, and it, I mean, that's kind of one of the subsets of the UFO phenomenon. There's so many of them. 
but studying under undersea objects as well. I mean, that's a that's a subset. And uh, the the Shag Harbor incident in Canada in 1968, which by the way the Condon Committee blew off by saying, well, we called up there, we talked to a couple of teenagers, there's nothing to it. The Canadian Navy and and other elements of the United States military and government took took the sightings very very ser- took the sighting very seriously. But the but the the, the real point is uh, they've been involved in this sort of investigation quietly for an awful long time. Well, here in California, uh, off the coast, we have had many, 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 many sightings where witnesses have observed these things leaving the ocean, entering the ocean, to the point where a lot of people began to suspect that if, in fact, E.T. is here and apparently something is here and it's unlikely that they would be going to and from their star system every time people see them, that would indicate that they have some type of permanent facility right here on the planet. I happen to think that's highly feasible. What do you think? Well, it's feasible, I, but I, I think it's not necessarily have some sort of facility on the planet, but I would think something more of an orbital plane. And I, like I said I, before, I always kind of thought of it as being an aircraft carrier because an aircraft carrier is a big, big ship, obviously, but it carries lots of other kinds of craft inside, and that explains the different shapes and different sizes and different things we see related to the UFOs. I mean, if you, if you flew a, a, a number of aircraft off an aircraft carrier, you would get helicopters, which looked nothing like a jet fighter, which looked nothing like the, uh, the electronic warfare craft that take off from, from uh, carriers. So you'd have a wide variety of objects being seen, and, but they all return to a specific base, which would be the aircraft carrier. So it makes sense that, that they may have something in orbit or they may have something under, underwater because I think if you can conquest the, uh, conquer the, the problems of space, then you would have the technical capability of dealing with some, putting something underwater where it would be very difficult for us in our environment, us today even, to detect that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and as we've, you know, we've talked about briefly, the stealth technology suggests that our aircraft, for example, can pretty much hide from radar. And what if you adapt that same kind of technology to something under underwater so the sonar can't detect it? And if it's down low enough, um, it's going to be outside the range of our instruments to be able to see it. So it's, it's, it's possible, and it saves you all that time and effort from traveling from where your home world is to where you, uh, where you want, to, want to go. But we don't understand the problems of interstellar. I mean, we don't understand how to do interstellar flight. There may be some secret, some way of doing it that defeats the, the, the vast distances and the, the energy requirements to move amongst the stars. And we don't happen to have that knowledge at the moment and maybe it's not that big a deal in which case that changes the whole complexion of the ufo phenomenon by saying well it's not that hard for them to get here from tau city or sirius you know sirius is what eight light years away tau city is 12 or 13 light years away they can they can do that in a matter of weeks it's not a big deal it's not a big energy requirement they figured out the secret and and so they're operating out of their home bases 
as opposed to something in orbit or something underwater. But it may be that it is a difficult task, and the solution is to put something in orbit that they could use for a base until they're done with their studies or whatever they want to do, or put something under undersea uh, until they're they're done with their studies and they can go home. Well, that that brings up several things, but looking at it from a technological standpoint, here we are currently in 2020. Humankind first took to the air in a 59, 58 or 59 second flight, just a few feet off the ground in December of 1903, 117 years ago. Now, my God, in cosmological time frames, that's not even quite an eye blink. And yet, here we are, we've been to the moon, we've sent robotic craft to Mars, we have one spacecraft that is now outside of our solar system, putting along at 30 or 40,000 miles an hour, it's not too hard, and I, I know a number of physicists that I've talked to, Kevin, uh, over the last few years, and almost every one of them have suggested, at least on paper, we know how to do the star thing, the star flight thing. Now, if technology catches up to... Uh, what they have jotted down on paper, then we might be in business. But here's something else. I'm trying to throw too much into this one basket. But we have the International Space Station up there. Now, I'm sure all of us at some point or another have looked at the live video feed coming down from the ISS. And how many times... Have you been watching that when suddenly something inexplicable flies into the frame and bingo, the feed is cut? Oh, we're having technological problems. Now, that tells me one of two things, Kevin. Either somebody else is flying around out there pretty freely or perhaps we have some extremely black budget craft that we're flying that nobody knows about. What do you say? The uh, simplest explanation is it's something of ours that we don't want people to know that we have. I mean, that doesn't require the invention of interstellar flight, but uh, when you when you move it to a different arena, we've seen these things long before we had the capabilities to do an awful lot of that stuff. Um, we've had we've had any number of radar cases where the the objects go from basically standing still to seven thousand, eight thousand miles an hour almost instantly. We still have no capability to do that. And you have to wonder: is this a glitch in the radar? Did the radar operators misread this, or was this an accurate reading of the instrumentality? Uh, so you have to look at all that. I will, I will make one correction to you. We went from, from Kitty Hawk in 1903 to the moon in 66 years. And had we continued with that kind of effort, 
we probably would have people on Mars and we might be in the asteroids and we might be on moons of Jupiter or Saturn had we continued the effort. But other things got in the way of us continuing our technological, technological advance. So we've made, we've made incredible progress from Kitty Hawk to where we are today. But I think had we made the effort, we could be a lot further down the road. Well, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to address that. Uh, when we stopped our lunar flights, our last one took place in December of 1972. We still had several missions that had already been paid for. The equipment was built. The astronauts were trained. And inexplicably, NASA pulled the plug. Now, there have been a lot of people in a lot of ways that have just scratched their head over that. Kevin, it's my position, and I can't prove this, all right? There's no way I can prove it. I could not go into a court of law and swear to this. But I think, in no uncertain terms, NASA was told to cool its hill, its heels, by a presence that was then and probably still is on the moon. Now, you may, you may poo-poo that. You may say, well, maybe, I don't know. Or you might think, Ecker, you're, you're just nuts. But that's what I believe. I really, really believe we were told to back the hell off. But before you answer, and I'm sure you will have something to say, we're at the break time. As a matter of fact, our last break of the evening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dark Matters Radio, brought to you by KGRA, your contact point to those dark, dusty corners in the night. And my guest tonight, Kevin D. Randall, who is always a wealth of information. We got more coming up, so we'll be back after these words. I'm getting older and noticing that my body just doesn't work as well as it used to. So I like to keep fit as possible by hitting the gym a few times a week. Recently, I started having a nagging bicep pain and it got so bad I couldn't even lift the weights. When I was complaining about it to a friend, he told me about Angioprim. He said chelation helps remove toxins, heavy metals, and cholesterol in veins and arteries that may cause blockages. You know, after just one week of taking Angioprim, the pain was gone and now I'm back in the gym full strength. Scientific research proves the active ingredient in angioprim has superior oral chelation action that helps promote cardiovascular health. So to learn more, go to angioprim.com. That's A-N-G-I-O-P-R-I-M.com. Or talk to a trained consultant. Call angioprim toll-free at 945-882-7221. You'll feel better with more energy. That's 945-882-7221. Or go to the website, angioprim.com. Folks, this is very important information. What's to be said about CBD? AncientLifeOil.com Our CBD is made from hemp and has .003 THC, which means this wonderful product won't get you high. No matter what amount you take. What does CBD do for the body? My hands are tied. But you can Google CBD benefits and be astounded. When you're finished reading 
you'll want to log on to ancientlifeoil.com. That's ancientlifeoil.com and purchase. Life is good when you feel good. People are tired of pain. People are asking for non-GMO organic products to help them with You fill in the blank. Legal in 49 states, and again, our CBD is made from hemp. Ancient Life Oil is about helping people one by one by one. If you wonder how good the product is, the CEO takes it every day without miss. AncientLifeOil.com. That's AncientLifeOil.com. Have a great day. Permanent industrial glue impossible to remove? Not anymore. Because Handyman Formula by D-Bond is a patented chemical adhesive remover. It's used in the building and home maintenance industry, but now it's available for your home use, for your DIY projects. Unglue stickers, silicone rubber, labels, price tags, flex tape, weather stripping, carpet glue, wood glue, liquid nails, even 3M5200. And it dissolves graffiti. Yeah, graffiti. Handyman Formula by D-Bond works, and it's safe to use on most surfaces. No need to call a professional. Don't get out the pliers and blowtorch. Just apply a little Handyman Formula by D-Bond, and wait 90 seconds, then quickly and easily pull the items apart. Get unstuck. Visit dbondhandymanformula.com. That's dbondhandymanformula.com, or call 561-575-4200. Handyman Formula by D-Bond. You listen to us, and we listen to you, and so does the CIA. <laughs> KGRARadio.com And we are back from our very last break to Mr. Kevin Randall. Kevin, uh, now's your opportunity to address what, uh, what I threw out there. That, uh, in essence, I think that the Americans were warned off the moon at that point in time. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, the, the, the problem was that when you, when you came back and said, I'm going to ask you a question, I was going to ask you as well, you know, I'm old, I forgot what you were talking about. But you went and explained it, so now I have to answer. <laughs> and, and... If you look at it, there, there is always the real possibility that that's what happened. There's always the, very poss- the real possibility that, that happened. But there's also the real possibility that the political climate changed and people were so incensed that all the money spent on space exploration that they wanted it put into social programs instead, help the people on Earth rather than sending all that money to the moon. Um, and I always thought the argument against that is you spend the money going to the moon, but the money is kept in circulation on the planet. We didn't send $400 million to the moon. All that money's still here. And it was paid to employees and it was paid to contractors and it was paid to an awful lot of people who were doing an awful lot of jobs to get that object to the moon. And it wasn't just the scientists and the engineers that were paid that money, but the secretaries and the janitors also were paid money. And they also contributed to the space program in that fashion. So, uh, you know, if you wanted to keep the space program going, you'd say, you know, we're spending this money to go to the moon, but it's, it's helping the economy. It's helping people at all levels of education, all levels of society uh, move forward. So a lot of new tech came out of that program. I was about to say that. And the other thing is we're now talking about technology that we're using right now that came out of the space program. 
your cell phone is more powerful than the computers on the, the Apollo spacecraft. You know, they would, they would kill to have an iPad, for example, because of the computing technology that it has and, and, and what we have. So all of the micro miniaturization came out of the space program. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff that we use today came out of the space program. So, yeah, it, it was a good thing. So you have to say, why would we stop that exploration? Was it because suddenly the political climate changed? And we could not explain it well enough. And all the senators and the congressmen and the president wanted to keep their jobs. So they backed off from supporting the space program. Or was there something else going on? Maybe the Soviets applied pressure and said, you know, if you control the moon, you control the earth. And we were really scared about that. And we may, we may feel the need to launch a few atomic weapons at you or something like that may have said, you know, it's just not worth the, the risk of an atomic war. I think the most likely explanation, probably the political climate, but that does not negate the very real possibility that somebody else said, you know, uh, we don't want you on the moon. Don't come back. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons. I think that, and you know, for over 20 years, and I know, you know, this, I conducted a lot of research into translunar phenomena, and I got a lot of photographs, a lot of them coming directly from NASA sources. And the bottom line is, Kevin, I have no doubt in my formerly military mind that uh, <laughs> the <laughs> that uh, uh, there are ruins and other inexplicable artifacts currently littering the lunar surface primarily on the on the uh, side facing away from earth well that would be the place to put it since we can't see it but uh, we do know, have I, I, we do have an orbiter up there right now now this is yes, this we is do. something else the clementine mission now, after we had gone to the moon, how many times with both manned as well as robotic probes, suddenly in 1996, the Department of Defense, using NASA resources, decides to go back to the moon and completely, totally re-photograph every square millimeter of the lunar surface. And how many of those photographs have the DOD ever released? Very damned few. They took over 2 million photographs. Now, Dr. John Brandenburg, okay, was the administrative assistant to the director of that mission. And he told me, and as a matter of fact, he even admitted this on, on this show, that while that mission was ongoing, they were not allowed to go over and see the photographs that were coming back from that satellite that they put into orbit to see what was being photographed. They were classified. Now, by God, that tells you or should tell you something, right? Well, it tells me two things. People over-classify over stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have a great story about that. Uh, Phil Class told me that during one of the Paris air shows, 
one of the photographers for Aviation Week and Space Technology taking a bunch of photographs of the Soviet aircraft. And so Aviation Week made duplicates of the of the all the photographs and sent the original film to the Air Force. Well, they, they missed one of the frames. And so they called the Air Force and they said, we'd like to get a copy of this picture. And, they, and the Air Force told Aviation Week, no, we can't give it to you. It's classified. <laughs> so, 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 you know, we have that problem to deal with, that the people classify stuff for ungodly stupid reasons um, as well. But, yeah, I but don't if know. They, if, it, they, if they knew that something was up there. Now, what I thought at the time when when this when the Clementine mission was ongoing was that they were looking to see what in fact may have changed on the lunar surface and that could well be the truth you know we just have to look at all of that sort of thing and, and figure out what's going on and we don't we just don't have access to all the information i think if we had access to all the information about UFOs, for example, we would know the truth. We would know what's going on. We would know whether it's a terrestrial phenomenon we do not understand, but but somebody in the government does, and for some reason they want to keep it secret, or it's extraterrestrial. We would know that if we had access to everything, and we see little bits and pieces to suggest that all the time. And that you know that was the thing with uh, with the sheriff of Level Land, you know, learning that he'd actually seen an oval oval shaped object, and yet you read the Air Force file, and there's no indication of that at all. Um, uh, you know, and that Air Force people were involved in that, but there's no in- indication of of that at all. I've never found the reports made by those Air Force officers. You know, they were interrogated. You know that the, the reports were made. Um, so you know, there's always those sorts of things. And I think if we had complete and total transparency, and and, and it's a ludicrous desire because there are things that need to be classified and secrets we don't want to be told for for the security of the nation. Let me but, let me let me pick your brain for a moment. Back in 1966, there was an Air Force general by the name of Bolander, and this was in a reference book I read. Well, now I guess it's over 30 years ago. I don't any longer. I I wouldn't even know where to look for it. But it was concerning a then UFO case that had popped up. It might have even been taken from the Condon Committee that was then meeting at the University of Colorado. But at any rate, Bollinger wrote a memo that said, well, this particular item or case, and I don't remember which, would not be in the Blue Book file. It would have been sent to another authority, which would seem to suggest to me at any rate that the Air Force had a complete and separate and covert organization handling UFO cases that demonstrated national security considerations. Are you familiar with that memo? Oh, absolutely. I I think what he actually said was cases that affected national security are not part of the Blue Book system. Okay. All right. And, and in essence, what you were saying there, it just clarifies it a little bit uh, uh, about that. We know in 1969 when Bolander made his statement, and it's been in lots and lots of books, and I've quoted it myself a couple of times. And you can you can look it up on the internet called Boland B O L E N D E R Bolander, 
and look that up and you can read the manual yourself. But we know that um, in, in 1957, they started a program called Project Moondust. Moondust was designed supposedly, and it came about because of the Soviet launching of Sputnik, I'm sure. But, but Moondust came about to retrieve returning space debris of foreign manufacturer or unknown origin. Unknown origin, of course, is UFO. And we have a number of cases from the moon dust that were um, UFO-oriented. I found four cases in the Blue Book files labeled moon dust. They're in September of 1960, and they're all really crappy cases, but they're labeled moon dust, which shows the, the um, UFO component to it. When Senator Jeff Bingaman from New Mexico wrote to the Air Force about moon dust, he was told no such project existed. When the documentation was presented with moon dust marked on it, and, and the source was the State Department, uh, the, the Air Force wrote back and said, well, it existed, but we never used it. And I'm thinking, would you like to see the documentation that showed that moon dust was in fact deployed? So we have the Air Force lying about that project, which had a UFO component. So yeah, we, there are secret studies. When moon dust was compromised, meaning the name was compromised, I think it was Robert Todd tried to get the new name under FOIA, and he was told the new name was properly classified and it's not releasable to the general public. So we know that something something that uh, transcended a blue book called Moondust existed until the mid-1980s, and once the name was comp compromised, they changed the name and they continued to march. Now we get to 2014 or 2015, and we learned that the Navy's been investigating UFOs. So clearly there's been a long history of classified UFO programs that we only blunder into periodically, and if we knew what all was being done, we'd probably be astonished at the amount of information available. All right. The last couple of years, there's been a ongoing television program, seasons one and two, titled Unidentified, that is uh, headed up by Christopher Mellon, a former Undersecretary of State for Intelligence Activities, Luis Elizondo, uh, and a number of other notables, uh, I can't think of the man's name, who headed up the Skunk Works or had been an engineer at the Skunk Works in Lockheed. And uh, another CIA, a former CIA scientist, and Tom DeLong. Now, especially in the first season, and I'm sure you saw all of those, Kevin, I'm I noticed, not going to. I'm not I going to to that. I'm not sure I did. Okay. All right. Well, but th there was one underlying theme that they stressed in every episode that they were dealing with a potential threat. Now, you've been banging around this field, dealing with many of the same people I dealt with uh, in the military in NASA, intelligence, etc., along with John Q. Public, not to mention the skeptical community. Now, in all the years that I was with UFO Magazine and I dealt with uh, a number of those people, I got one constant theme from them, denial, 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 
There's nothing real here. It's all crap. In essence, that's what they were saying. But suddenly, you've got a guy like Mellon who was in a rarefied position that was one of the elites of the intelligence community suddenly turning around and getting involved in something like this. Now, I got to tell you, I was gobsmacked. There was just a whole lot of unbelievability with me. So I put on my detective hat and I started thinking about this very, very hard, very serious and very deep. And I came up with one of only a couple of possible conclusions. Number one, one possibility, the guy is working on a long-term disinformation operation. Okay, that's one possibility. Number two, the possibility is somebody deep inside the deep state knows that something may be steam-barreling its way toward us. They know that sooner or later it's going to hit the public, and they are possibly trying a soft disclosure. Or, number three, no one, either in or out of government, has a damned clue what is going on. And I, incidentally, I don't buy that either. So where do you fall in that uh, milieu of uh, possibilities? I've been thinking about this, and I've run into a number of people who have had spectacular military careers and have gone out on limbs talking about their nearly unbelievable UFO experiences. And I try to figure out what do they hope to gain by this if they're making it up? Um, is it that important to them that they, I guess the, 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 the person that comes to mind is Corso with his story. Um, what would be the motivation for telling all of this nonsensical stuff at, at, at for, for what reason would he do that? And yet I know what Corso said was pretty much nonsensical. I mean, if you're traveling across country and I, I, I find it hard to believe an aviation unit is going to transport alien bodies in a convoy fly, driving across country when they can put them in airplanes and fly them there in a matter of hours. Uh, and then unloading the trucks at Fort Riley for an overnight, or as you 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 and I would know, we'd call a Ron, remain overnight, uh, unloading the trucks and then leaving them essentially unguarded so that Corso would have an opportunity to gaze at one of the alien bodies. What's, what's the point of all of that? And I wonder about these even higher ranking people who are telling these stories or involved in this sort of thing. What do they hope to gain? What is their purpose behind it? And I have not figured that out if... If there's nothing to the UFO phenomenon, then is, is it they're being called by cable TV channels to be on television uh, chatting about it, and, and they're not paid for that kind of commentary, so there's no financial gain in it? Is it, is it just being on television and have, having their names associated with something? I don't know. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why they would be making this stuff up and coming forward with some of these cockamamie stories. I mean, I understand some people who are 
pretty much unknowns coming forward with really bizarre stories because that pr- projects, pr- propels them into the spotlight. But the guys at the top end, they don't need that exposure. They can, they can go in a different arena and get that exposure because of who they are and what they, ha- what they have done in the government. So I don't understand the motivation behind, behind that if they're making this stuff up. And yet the big problem is they can't point to a place where we can go to verify the information. They say, well, when I was there, I saw this, this, and this. But we cannot get to that this, this, and this to see what exactly they saw. And it, and it kind of comes back to uh, some of the other things you know we, we've talked about here about how uh, – the, the information is manipulated and the information is hidden, but I do not understand why people at the top end would be um, making these tales up. I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand the motivation for that. And there seems to be no pur- purpose behind it. Do you think Kevin that before you and I shed our mortal coil? that we will be any closer to what is actually going on. Because I got to tell you, for many, many, many years, I thought that when I finally pass on into the great beyond, I'm not going to know basically any more than I know right now. But first of, things have changed of, a bit. Well, first of all, I have to tell you that I plan to live forever or die in the attempt. Okay. But second... Second, um, I, I have believed for a long time that disclosure, learning the truth, is not in the hands of our government, but in the hands of the aliens. If they decide it's time to announce their presence, they're going to do it, and there's nothing the government can do to stop it. You, and, you know as well as I do in intelligence work, um, even though you know the other side knows the answer, you lie about it because... Uh, until they release the information they have, you're golden. And the best example of that is when, when Gary Powers was shot down in the Soviet Union. Eisenhower went on TV and says, we're not flying spy planes over the <laughs> Soviet Union. And, and he could say that with impunity because he thought that there was no way the Soviets could prove it until the Soviets said, ah, here's Gary Powers, and this is what he said. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the situation I see us in today where the government can, can deny it until the aliens decide, hey, we're here and you can't, you cannot anymore deny our, our existence. So well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I was just going to say, unfortunately, there was something else that I wanted to uh, kick around with you. And I'm just looking at the clock. We're, we're fast running out of show. But uh, let me just mention it in passing, and I'm not going to do justice to it. We don't have the time. But the Eric Davis Thomas Wilson quote-unquote memo. Now, this is something that I have been deeply fascinated by since the story originally broke. I first discovered it from a video that uh, Richard Dolan had done on YouTube, his second video. And at that point, and I I didn't know why at the time, he was under a lot of criticism about calling this the smoking gun of the 21st century. But uh, there's a hell of a lot to go into. I, I God, I wish we had 
wish we had another hour, Kevin, which is just simply going to mean you're going to have to come back so we can kick this around. But uh, it involves an SAP, a special access program. Now, a lot of people don't understand what that is. And that is so highly compartmentalized and classified that even acknowledging that there may be something dealing with a special access program is a felony if you let it out. So you got any quick uh, take on that from your perspective? I will say that I talked to uh, Joe Mergia, Mergia, who had spent a lot of time investigating this sort of thing. And there's this, something on my, on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com that goes into depth into what he said and some of the things that I found about that as well. And what he admitted on my radio program about his research. But I think if you're going to talk about this, one of the things, the, one of the first things you do is you have to go to his, uh, he had a 24,000 word report that he put up on his website and it, you can access it through my blog and you can read all four segments of that and give yourself a real perspective about um, how all of this transpired. And I think it, I think before you can discuss it intelligently and I'm, you know, I'm talking to, to everybody else that, that you need to look at what he has to say and look at my discussion with him about what he had learned about it and some of the other evidence that's out there about it. It's an interesting program. I don't think it raises, reaches the point of smoking guns simply because of the um, controversy over what exactly was said and, and how the documents ended up in the public arena and that sort of thing. There's some problems with looking at all of that, but that's the way it is in the entire UFO field. You can look at anything and say, well, you know, there's some problems with provenance. There's some problems with the way the document surfaces. There's some problems with this. There's some problems with that. But it's, it, it is a very complex story. And you have to get really deep into it to understand all the ins and outs of how it transpired. Well, I, I found it not at all surprising that Wilson totally denied, denied, denied it. Simply, if there was such an SAP program, by law, he would have to deny it by law. And on the and other side of the coin, if it and if it never happened, he would deny it. So he's he's caught in a catch twenty two. But exactly, yes, he is. But but Davis, on the other hand, won't even come. You know, I just see that as I'm just going to be very blunt. He's chicken shit to not even come forward to either affirm or deny or to tell anybody none of your damn business. And, and we kind of go into that on, on the radio interview I did with um, Joe Mergia. And it was just a couple of weeks ago. So if you go to my blog, it'll link to the, you can listen to the show or you can, uh, I think there's even links to his report on his website. So you can read all of that stuff and, and get a, a more comprehensive picture of what you and I are kind of touching on here without having a, the, the time to get into it in depth. Well, Kevin, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And unfortunately we, are now officially out of time. Hey, as always, it's great having you come on. I want you to come back soon, depending upon your schedule. Uh, any final I will have thoughts? you on my show. Yes, I will have you on my show here coming up as soon as 
I get my internet connections back and that will we'll get you on the program and we can chat about some of this stuff as well on my program and kind of make it a series between you and me bouncing between programs. Okay, that sounds good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for tonight. Kevin, thank you deeply from the bottom of my heart. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, everybody else, have a great weekend. We'll see you again next week. In the meantime, keep those eyes pointed up, your ear to the ground, and uh, just to give you an idea of what is happening around, and we'll see you then. Good night. Thank you.